Welcome to For and Against, where we look at the big issues in sport off the field of play. It's Paul Roach with you here once again. And joining us once again, we have David Gill. G'day, Bear. G'day, Roachie. Simon Johnson. Hello to you, Jono. G'day, Roachie. And our Bleak City correspondent is Stephen Riley. G'day, Riles. G'day, Paul. G'day, everyone. Now, footy season's up and running. Have we have we made the transition? We've sort of found our feet with the, the new rhythm of, of having sport back on in a regular time. Great to see crowds back, isn't it? Uh, not that I've been out to a game yet, but very keen to get out and see a Swans game soon. Yep, coming up, do, off to a good start, obviously. Gilly, how about yourself? Look, very grateful to your son because I've been trying to get my son interested in football for a while and young Callum did a fantastic job of indoctrinating Oscar into Aussie rules last weekend and ah. we're off to our first game in a few weeks. So, Good stuff. Say good thanks. Stuff. Uh, how is religion being turned back on down in Bleak City, Steve? You know what? I didn't think I'd be that into it so quickly, but I watched yeah, I watched half the games last weekend and plan to do more this weekend. Well, there you go. And, of course, it's all about Formula 1, really, too, which is up and running as well. We'll come back to that uh, in particular. But coming up on the show, private equity in sport. We talked to mergers and acquisitions lawyer Nick Kipriotis. Uh, with the Formula One season commencing, we look at the rise of the fly-on-the-wall sports documentary, also when off-field success outweighs on-field. NFTs as well, and if time permits, competitive giant vegetable growing. I think we'll be ensuring the time permits for that one. Uh, and of course, we end the show with red card, yellow card, where we revel in the off-field misdemeanours of our favourite sports people. Do use the hashtag RCYC if you see one. Speaking of the socials, Twitter at for and against underscore Insta, for dot and dot against. You got it, Rochi. Oh, you're on fire. Taking me seven shows or something. And if you're old school like us, email for and against at hotmail.com. All righty, let's get into it. We spoke a couple of shows back about the speculation that private equity money was looking to find its way into rugby, and in particular from well-known private equity firm CVC, who themselves were former owners of Formula One. Now it transpires that there was some truth to the rumours, with some significant minority investments in Europe being made by CVC. So they paid £120 million, sorry, this is pounds, £120 million, into Pro 14, which is sort of the the club version of the Six Nations. Uh, That gave them a 27% stake. They got a similar percent stake for £200 million of Premiership Rugby, which is the English competition. And they paid £365 million for about a 15% chunk of Six Nations, the Six Nations tournament. And this is commercial rights, obviously. And on top of suggestions recently, which is what triggered this on the show a couple of shows ago, that New Zealand rugby was considering something similar, Rugby Australia has now announced that it has approved a pathway, quote-unquote, for private equity proposals. So all very interesting, but it begs the question, why does private equity money now like sport? Well, joining us to shed some light on the subject is Nick Kupriotis, a mergers and acquisitions partner at law firm Minter Ellison. Hi, Nick. Thanks for joining us on the show. G'day, Rochi. Great to be with you. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> Nick, sports are obviously struggling off the back of 2020. Is this move an opportunistic one on the part of CVC, in particular private equity generally, or was this always coming? I think so. I think there's a bit of both to that. So there's a 
couple of opportunistic uh, elements in the current kind of COVID environment, but from a broader sort of thematics perspective, there are some things to do with sport that really excite private equity and other sort of investment types. So I think the interesting thing here is some of these kind of um, sports clubs and teams historically have kind of been vanity investments for some of the rich and famous, but we're seeing a move into um, more seasoned investors kind of um, seizing on opportunities to, to, in some ways, view the assets, not just as um, sporting ones, but really uh, in terms of sort of valuable media assets. You talk, uh, Nick, about value, really keen to, get, I guess, get a sense of what the value proposition is there. So I guess both in respect of the private investor, equity investor, I should say, and also the sports themselves, what, what is the value proposition? And I guess also following on from that, what sort of due diligence would be done on these, uh, these entities before um, the investment is made? Yeah, John, it's a very interesting question. I guess there's kind of a bit of a distinction you can look at teams themselves or franchises to use the US kind of phraseology as opposed to some of the broader um, you know uh, you know like the New Zealand rugby really coming in at the association level and basically picking up um, the championship rather than the actual club I think each of them have some some compelling uh, pieces to them I think in terms of uh, the, the the club dynamic you've obviously got very long long established brands for most of um, sports that are in uh, vogue at the moment, um, huge followings, and I guess these days with things like some of the digital president uh, presences, it's very easy to understand just just how far and wide the global reach of some of those sports teams might be. I think they've got some kind of unique also um, aspects to the kind of asset. So often I think um, the most valuable parts of these businesses are very long-term media. Um, contracts which are very, very long dated often um, and obviously highly lucrative. Um, so that's kind of another element that I think is very important. The other thing is, in a way, both for, for a franchise but also more broadly for a, for a championship at large, they're very sticky kind of assets. There's really only one of their kind. It's very hard to replicate a you know, New York Yankees or something like that from a, from a standing start. So I guess just stepping into something that has in some ways monopolistic character, sort of characteristics in some respects, and that's always a really good place to be or at least a kind of more of an oligopoly or something like that. So it's also a good place for investors to be. Um, I think, uh, you know, the other kind of key, key thematic here um, as, as funds and investors will often talk to are kind of some of the changing trends around consumption of media and data and um, the way that people actually enjoy entertainment. So um, some of those um, elements as well, I think, are leading to, um, you know, trending towards the need for capital um, and the need for people with skills that, 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 that can be leveraged to actually optimise um, some of those uh, different trends that are emerging. And then simply, if COVID's taught us anything, I think really, um, and you know, definitely with past um, major events of that kind of nature, sport and sports viewing is very recession-proof. So there are a couple of characteristics there that I think, taken um, in totality, really create potentially um, a very, very good um, fertile ground. Hey, Nick, do you think, you know, when private equity gets into this sort of stuff, there's, there's usually a couple of models there they're going to follow. They're either going to, you know, break it up into little pieces and sell it for more than the, what they bought the whole for, or they're going to um, 
you know, they're getting a bargain that, that, the, that the entity they're buying into needs the cash. So it's a timing thing. Um, or or there, there might be something where they just think it's flat out mismanagement and they think they can do it better. What do you what do you think we're seeing here? Raz, very interestingly, probably a combination of all of the above. I think historically these these um, these sporting associations have been very very in a way provincially run. They've come into a lot of money, and there's probably some optimization that can be done by investors with some savvy. So there's definitely one element there. The second element probably is you know um, more crudely around COVID. There's a shortfall in revenue streams, so definitely there's a little bit of a, um, a, a kind of in a way a we now need um, outside help, whereas in the past there's probably been some resistance and reluctance to that sort of um, uh, sort of input from a fund or something of that nature. Um, in terms of what what funds might look to do, it's a very difficult thing to predict. I guess it's still a very emerging um, area in terms of a field of play for investment, but um, definitely these funds often have uh, uh, dates by which they need to liquidate the fund and sometimes that doesn't necessarily match with the longer term play you might need for some of these um, uh, sports uh, ventures where there are longer term, uh, you know, in particular media rights uh, plays where I think the consistent view over time has been that the media um, or the value of the media rights contracts have just gone up exponentially over time. So. It's difficult at this stage to determine, but there's a few um, usual levers there that 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 might uh, play out. I suppose Nick, that raises the question of governance and control. And one thing that the the sporting purists may, may be concerned about is that these American private venture sabermetrics cutthroat, bloodthirsty, after nothing but money, <laughs> people are coming in and they're going to take over and run a sport. How? From from your position, when, when private equity is coming into sport or any other business, how are they thinking about governance or does that depend a lot on the, the asset that they're acquiring and how well it, it's managed? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think uh, smart investors will base it on a case-by-case basis. And when you're dealing with something like sport that really has a very captive grassroots base where um, sometimes the, the, the trend may be to cut, cut, cut costs um, and not actually investing grassroots could actually have the, the negative impact in something like this where effectively the kind of symbiotic relationship between grassroots and then feeding through to um, you know, people that are actually paying consumers in the future. So I think um, smart investors will realise that. They'll realise that um, community and fan engagement is, is, is extremely important, not just from a a revenue perspective, but we've seen examples um, in the Premier League and others, um, in particular, someone like Mike Ashley, who's a multi-multi-millionaire in the in the um, UK, who's owned Newcastle Football Club for something like 15 years, highly unpopular, not investing back into the team, um, and 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 fans um, actually um, have, have 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 tried to oust him at multiple opportunities. So I think it needs to have a bit of a different approach to some typical investments, but certainly um, some of the usual approaches that they would take to um, parts of an investment would need to be um, uh, something that they look at in, in, in sport as well. Nick, you mentioned football there, slash soccer, for the, the heathens that listen to us. <laughs> um, it was interesting, a show or two ago, Gilly and I were talking, what well, we were talking, but 
particular about the um, the change in dynamics of money in football, and we were referencing in particular the Chinese money that was disappearing from 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 football. Um, but that does seem to be being filled by these kind of private equity style interests. Uh, international, sorry, football being that sort of that fully international, completely international, arguably the biggest global show in town. Does that sort of uh, invite a different style of investor, a different uh, need of an investor, or is it just a matter of scale? Yeah, so that's a very good point. I think the interesting thing about football, and I'm a bit of a football tragic and an Arsenal fan probably for all my sins, but um, that's, that's I guess tragic. the interesting thing with football is promotion and <laughs> exactly, um, is promotion and relegation. So that really changes in some ways the, the risk profile around an asset like this where um, being relegated actually has a huge impact on the bottom line and the feasibility of running the club at the same size and scale at which it was run previously. The interesting thing though, and it might come through some form of consolidation or some of these, these kind of mega investors getting together, there's been um, long talked about in football circles, particularly in Europe, a concept of a Super League, effectively, which would almost supplant the Champions League but become a, a weekly competition. So there are some some suggestions that part of the push here by some of these investors, CVC and others, might be to actually agitate from within and create one of those broader scale, more, more, more global, more um, readily consumable um, product that features the best teams, the best players and the best games week in, week out. So um, from my perspective, I guess the way that I view it, football has some great characteristics there because like you touched on, the, the, the global attraction. But there are also some tough bits. You've got a, like I said, promotion relegation system. You've got a transfer system that costs a lot of money um, and can be very hit or miss. So when you think about the traditional way that um, an investor would uh, place capital into a business and expect a return, it's probably not that straight line correlation that you would sometimes expect from a more traditional investment when it comes to football. And Nick, um, returning to Australia, we mentioned rugby right at the outset, but um, are you aware of, or, or in your view, are there any particular sports in Australia that would be ripe for some uh, PE investment at the moment? Yeah, it's a tricky one. I think the, the, the size and scale of some of the Australian leagues probably doesn't lend itself to the right um, size of investment um, or the scale. I think rugby has some legs and it might actually be through its association with New Zealand in some ways that might give it some broader appeal. Um, but, you know, I think in terms of uh, the, the kind of mainstream sports, I think it would be very hard for someone like the AFL to agree to have a private equity investor come in and take a stake in the, the management of the game. Um, possibly similarly with the NRL, um, both of those sports as kind of cultural symbols in a way of Australia, but I guess the New Zealanders have gotten themselves relatively comfortable, Simon, so never say never <laughs> on that front. I think it gets interesting when you think about the timing for these things, you know, for rugby, even even for the NRL. Uh, I think Peter Volandis is a, uh, a very, very clever commercial man, so I wouldn't rule out uh, the NRL doing it. But I'm interested in time frames. You talked before about private equity usually having a period when they want to get their money back. Um, in the NFL last week, they just announced an 11-year TV deal. Mm. Uh, which included Amazon. 110 billion, a, I think, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over, over 11 years, that's right. And Amazon are paying a billion dollars a year to televise the Thursday night game. Now, I mean, we could talk all day about whether the 11 years was actually the TV channels trying to cement some programming before it all got mm. ripped away year on year on year. 
but I'm fascinated by how private equity is going to line up their timeframes with, you know, sport who are hopefully thinking about the long term. Yeah, a really good point. I think a lot of these funds often um, do have some sort of forced exit horizon where they need to, um, you know, deploy capital early and get it out and return to investors. I think there needs to be probably a bit of a shift for people looking to get into um, some of these kind of investments, particularly because I feel like leagues um, across the world, and there's been talk that the Serie A in Italy and the Bundesliga in Germany, for example, as a league, are looking to sort of attract um, investors of this nature. But I think what the leagues want um, would be long-term passive financial partners. And that doesn't normally stack up with how private equity funds like to generally control a lot of um, decision-making around um, parts of the business. The other thing I think that's interesting is, um, and it's a quandary that I think can't be solved today, but what does a private equity fund do when it wants to eventually exit? Um, is the is the league, for example, if it's a investment into a league rather than a club, is the league kind of forced to accept whoever the private equity fund chooses? There's usually a lot of legal mechanisms around ensuring liquidity for a fund, but where there's sort of sensitive issues involved, like grassroots, like you know the historic governance of the game, um, including I think in New Zealand. Interestingly, I think the investment there is proposed to go into the body that actually administers the rules of the game. So it's very, in terms of finding that right partner, it's a very interesting predicament, I think, in terms of um, timeframes that, that, that private equity and other investment funds might look at. Nick, I have to ask you as a uh, fellow footballing tragic, and you mentioned the, uh, the potential breakaway uh, a European Super League, which has been on the cards for a while. Um, is this going to happen? Um, if so, how soon? And is there anything UEFA or FIFA could do to stop them? Oh, look, it's uh, something that's been talked about for, for decades. I feel like um, it's going to be very difficult probably to actually get a Super League away. I feel like FIFA and UEFA obviously have a very vested interest in trying to keep the power base through their, their organisations. Ultimately, it will come down to clubs, and if clubs decide to walk, I feel one thing that maybe some of the governing bodies might look to do is, you know, limit individual players' abilities to then go off and maybe represent national teams and other things of that nature. So there's a few levers there, but I guess it's uh, it's one where I think the historic power base won't be giving it up very easily. Nick, final question uh, on cricket. So, of course, we have a fairly successful league in the Big Bash League here in Australia. The Indians have quite a successful IPL, Indian Premier League. Uh, Indian, is it Premier League? I suppose it is. Yeah. I just call it the IPL. It yep. Don't we all? Um, and now there's been a bit of scuttlebutt about... Uh, and the IPL team's obviously being privately owned as opposed to the BBL team's being what I'll call centrally owned. There's been a bit of scuttlebutt about some of that money in India looking to get a toehold in the Australian system. Now, as, as a man who's done a few transnational deals himself and uh, with a, a penchant for sport as well, do you see any possibilities there from what you know of, of, of either structure and, and what you've seen in, in transnational deals generally? Yeah, so interestingly, um, private equity is growing in India of all places. So there certainly is a growing pool of capital there that um, is looking to deploy itself in a way similar to what traditional private equity funds would. Um, in, in, in terms of um, 
being able to leverage that that huge scale in India and the huge TV rights deals that they sign over there. I feel like um, an Australian competition like the Big Bash would would certainly need to entertain um, uh, uh, offers or at least ideas around some sort of, whether it's an investment or some sort of partnership, I, th- I, th- I think certainly that would be worthy of consideration. From a cross, cross-border perspective, I think, um, you know, whilst they're slightly different business and operating kind of models and legal systems, there's always a way through when it comes to comes to money and investing capital. So I'm sure that'll be done. Ah, it's a disaster in the making. It turns the BBL into the Canadian Football <laughs> League or, or the European <laughs> Basketball League. No, no. Got to stop it, please. <laughs> We'll, we'll take that as a comment, Steve. Uh, but Nick, Nick, we might leave it there if that's okay. Really appreciate you joining us on For and Against to take us through your insights into private money, into the sporting fraternity. Thanks for joining us on For and Against. Thanks, Chance. Pleasure. Nick Capriotis there, manage, uh, mergers and acquisitions partner at law firm Minter Ellison, taking us through the commercial realities of sport in the 2020s. As mentioned earlier, the Formula One season is upon us. Uh, looking forward to seeing you all down in Melbourne in November. Fingers crossed. Oh, yeah. I'll come down. Give it a go. Is yeah, it a 10-year anniversary? Sure. 15 since oh, we went down there? It must be 20. Long time. It's a while, isn't it? Anyway, go down. Uh, it was no coincidence that the launch of Season 3 of Fly on the Wall Formula One doco Drive to Survive happened a week or so before the season commenced. On a side note, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with that title drive to survive it sort of suggests that it's almost gladiatorial well it is a bit gladiatorial maybe it's the look they're going for but these guys actually they are at risk of not surviving mm. just ask Roman Grosjean anyway um, for those that haven't seen it all the Formula 1 teams have given a film crew pretty much access all areas clearance and the docos produced well actually I haven't seen any Gilly so can you take us through ah, <laughs> the, the appeal ah. the appeal Oh, I just haven't gotten to Netflix yet. I don't have enough time. I will one day. Uh, everyone tells me I've got to watch it as a big Formula One fan. But, but Gilly, so take us through the appeal of Drive to Survive. Okay, so I would describe it in one phrase as reality TV on steroids because it's it's set in this fishbowl of Formula One, the pinnacle of motor racing, with very ruthless, very ambitious, extremely talented people who are focused on one thing and one thing only, and that's winning. So the characters are fascinating. They all, I would say, alpha males or alpha females, and they all very self-obsessed. <laughs> really um, interesting human dynamics. Married very well with action on the track as well. So every every episode is probably about an hour long, 45 minutes of interviews and people talking, and then the narrative of, of a particular race in each episode with great footage from that race, a lot of the conversations between the team principals and their drivers. Um, but as I said, reality TV on steroids. Now, John, you're not a Formula One fan in particular, as much yeah. as you're champion to come to Melbourne, you're, you're an events person, you love, you love the excuse to get away, but you're, you're not a Formula One watcher. Correct, you said yeah. you had watched a couple of Yeah, so I tried shows. to get into it. I know Dave's been uh, spruiking this one for a little while. I watched two episodes of the first series, and I must say it didn't grab me, but it's probably one of those ones that I need to go back and give some more time to, because I've heard great things about this show. And Steve-O, you thought it was a one-off, let alone a, not, not a series, so you obviously haven't quite got across it yet. No, 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 I caught up, mate, I caught up. 
the uh, and and I think it is so much better than the actual you know Formula One racing, which is so <laughs> boring. Yep. Here um, we go. <laughs> and, and, and Dave got to, you know, bang on. Uh, and now, I, I mean, I've been spruiking that sport is just reality television for a very, very long time. This actually digs yep. into it and it, it builds the story around what's going on. And, and just relating to the title, I think the title is, is incredibly clever because it's not just talking about uh, athletes who drive missiles around, uh, around tracks. It's, it's actually talking about how they have to win or do well enough to, to keep their jobs, right? Mm. It's got real drama mm. in uh, in how they go. The other thing it does, it gets into the personalities of, of these um, of these rocket ship um, drivers, and of course you've got to have a certain uh, fearlessness, a certain bravado, and of course only one person can win every time. So you know, I've I've found it quite compelling. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Ricardo's famous for his smile, but he, he's put that put the lid on, uh, and that's part of the interest of interest about Formula One. Or the curious thing about Formula One is the athletes hidden. Basically, when they compete, they are effectively hidden. Yes, but not not in Drive to Survive. In Drive to mm. Survive, they um, right in the centre with a flashlight on them for for most of the show. But I think t- to Stephen's point, I think Liberty Media, the the owners of Formula One, have have almost said, well. Formula One is, to the uninitiated, pretty boring. And this partnership with Netflix is a way to make it interesting. Mm. Um, and if you, if you read, uh, I, I was reading some kind of critiques of the show, and, and the one thing that stood out was the its uncanny ability to make a unknown driver finishing seventh in some or other Grand Prix as interesting and as exciting as Lewis Hamilton winning the 14th Grand Prix in mm. a row. It's often about those stories, isn't it? I know there's been some similar fly-on-the-wall documentaries that have come out in the last 12 or 18 months or so. Um, you've got the test, the Amazon Prime one with the Australian cricket team, The Last Dance uh, with the Chicago Bulls, and as well as telling Sunderland the story. Until I Die, that was a similar yeah. kind of thing, wasn't yep. it? Yep. But as well as telling the story, as you say, Dave, it's it's often about the minor characters. So I found the Dennis Rodman sideshow absolutely fascinating in the in the last dance. Yeah. That was a, a, a classic part of that. And similarly, the, the Cappuccino kids um, uh, in the in the test, watching those guys, you know, and seeing a little bit more about them off the field of play, it was, it was great. I wonder with these... and. and Drive to Survive sort of prompted this thought, being the Formula One fan, but it applies to all of them. I wonder how much they're designed for the purist, the already rusted on fan, and I sort of thought that I was the obvious audience for Drive to Survive, or whether, by accident or by design, they've actually attracted a whole lot of fans to the sport that wouldn't otherwise have been interested. And, and I'm starting to fall more towards the latter, having sort of heard a lot of people, a number of people, um, who aren't otherwise particularly Formula One fans that come to me, knowing that I am, going... Oh, Roach, have you watched that Drive to Survive? It's fantastic. I'm loving it. I'm watching the races now. So it's actually a really, been a really interesting fan acquisition tool. I'm not yeah. sure how deliberate that was. I think it's it's definitely very much by design. And Formula One is not getting paid a lot of money by Netflix do, do for they have giving editorial, them the access. Do they have editorial I, control? I, I, you know? I, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that, but they're not paying them. They're not receiving a lot of cash for yeah. it, but it's, it's a fantastic... Um, fantastic marketing tool for them and i think it goes back to something Stephen was saying in our last episode which is catering to the way that the younger generation and by younger Mm. generation i'm saying anybody under 40 it's catering to the way that they consume sport now and will consume sport in the future i agree with agree with that a thousand percent you know i think 
Why it might not appeal to someone like yourself, Paul, is you know a lot of the backstory. You know, you know where Danny Ricardo came from. You have some of the the journey for him, and you probably know a little bit of the backstory for Vettel and 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 Hamilton and the rest. But someone else coming in and getting the you know where this person is from and the position they're they're in coming into the race, and and obviously they're telling this knowing the results, so they're really telling uh, quite a good dramatic uh, arc. In, in each episode. So I, I think it's, uh, I, I'm really interested to see if this changes the way that we see a lot of sport being reported, particularly at the end of a year, if you get mm. recaps like this. I'm, I'm actually interested to see if it changes the way that the teams select their drivers and one of their selection <laughs> oh. criteria in the future is going to be, Good how character. is this guy going to be on, wow. on Netflix? Because you learn on the show that the, the 20 drivers in Formula One are not the best 20 drivers in the world. Mm. I mean, there's other factors mm. leading into the selection of, of who gets a drive where. Politics, the right nationality because the yep. sponsor you've got. Um, exactly. So people yep. who can bring money to the team if yep. for the lower down teams. I think it's telling how powerful it is actually that for the first series, Ferrari and Mercedes, the top two teams, said, no, no, we're not going to be part of that. But then given the success of that first series, they've gone, yep, no problem, they're on board. So I think that's a really good indicator of the success, define success how you wish, that, that those two teams actually wanted, maybe were nudged, but wanted to be involved. And Ferrari, I mean, last year was a complete mm. disaster for mm. Ferrari, but they they still there. Should make for an interesting season three. Well, look, Steve, I think I'll, apparently I will actually enjoy seeing that all of that backstory stuff and the behind-the-scenes stuff. So if I ever bother to get a Netflix account, uh, you'll all be the first to know. Now, um, just before we leave Formula One, uh, Murray Walker. Uh, sad to see him pass away at the grand old age of 97, been commentating on motorsport basically since the 50s. Um, and, you know, is there a more iconic voice associated with the sport? I mean, I think Formula One owes him, and, and they know this, owe him a great debt for the publicity he generated for, for the sport at a time when it was developing commercially. I have to use the word, Richie. He's a doyen. Doyen. He's a doyen. No, yeah. doubt, it. no doubt about it. Mm. Yeah. Richie Benno cricket, I guess. But, yep. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a big loss. I mean, he hasn't been involved directly in Formula 1 for a decade or so. And, of course, the decade prior to that, there was debatable whether he should have been involved in Formula <laughs> <laughs> There are some magnificent quotes from, from Murray during his time. The lead car is unique, except for the one behind it, which is identical. It's <laughs> <laughs> one example. We, we and could the go first on, five like places that. are filled with five different cars. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, oh, the, one I like, the, one, the one I like, oh, one more quote, one more quote. These cars keep going sure. round and round and round, and ah, it's so. Yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's Billy Birmingham. That's twelfth man yeah. material, Steve. You've overstepped the line there. Anyway, Vale Murray Walker, and uh, I'll let you know if I have a look at uh, Drive to Survive. Uh, welcome to the shootout where we deal with a few issues in uh, slightly more economical fashion. Uh, it's interesting where players prioritise off-field success over on-field. You'd think that need to, people need to do well on the field before they can be successful off the field, but there's almost like a shift, and maybe this is sort of the you know social media influence and lots of stuff, not influencers, the influence of social media, the ability to get your message out via social media, that means that yeah, the on-field success does not necessarily is not necessarily required as much as I see it to be successful off the field. And I, I don't want to talk golf, Jono. But you're going to have to, Richie. <laughs> but some bloke you call Ricky Fowler, you, you reckon, know, is a good example. Ricky Fowler. I, so I do as of two days big, ago. For the big golf fans amongst us, you you included Richie. He's the guy that wears, wears orange all the time. 
So he's uh, he wears orange. No, he apparently went to Oklahoma State Uni and their colours are orange. So traditionally he wears orange on Sundays if he's in contention. Maybe every day is Harmony Day for Ricky. Could be that, his cultural heritage, I'm not sure. But um, yeah, so he, the issue unfortunately is he's not in contention much, so he's not getting to wear his orange. Uh, He's now ranked number 81. And the reason why this has become a bit of a a story in the last week or so is that the acerbic Nick Faldo. So So acerbic. Former, you know, many times major winner, now um, commentator who likes to have digs at current players quite regularly. Is he like the Graeme Graeme Gooch of golf commentating? Grumpy, yeah, Yeah, really grumpy. Um, And he tweeted... Uh, which was a bit of a poke at Ricky Fowler. Good news if he misses the Masters. He can shoot another six commercials that week. Now, this was a reference to the fact, so Ricky, to your point, Rochi, with the intro, um, he's probably one of the most successful off-the-course off players. Phenomenal amount of endorsements, and every time he plays, he'd be in the top four or five draw cards, both for spectators and watching on TV. He's just one of those guys that everyone loves to watch. Never won a major, but he's just got that pizzazz. But... Yeah, it's interesting to see, you know, at some point he's going to have to focus on on-field because these um, endorsements and all of his um, success off the course, it's going to come to a grinding halt if he can't start producing on course. So, yeah, watch this space. He, he should be in the top 10. He's an amazingly um, talented golfer. Watched him live a couple of times and great to watch. I'd love to see him win a major. I did, of course, mean Jeffrey Boycott. Uh, Rather my, than Graham Gooch. My apologies, Graham. Graham <laughs> Gooch, <laughs> 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 he was grumpy as well. Yep, no, no. Uh, yeah, you I were just it. wrong. Uh, yeah. Yeah, basically, basically. Well, it's it's interesting it's happening in tennis a bit as well. Um, I mean, tennis itself is going through an interesting sort of period with uh, Djokovic trying to unionise the players a, a little bit. Um, but the top players make an astronomical, in tennis I'm talking about, make an astronomically large percentage of their money uh, from endorsements, and I know they're not alone in this, but I just happen to find some figures. So Naomi Osaka, number two ranked woman in the world, she earned uh, 37.5 mil US in 2020, and basically all of that was from sponsors. Now, I suppose 2020 is a bit of a warped example, obviously, but the fact that they can still earn that money. Um, similarly, Federer made about 100, 106 mil, uh, 100 mil of which was from endorsements. And he was number one in on Forbes' rich list for athletes, I think. Right, and, and Osaka was high, very high on that same list as well. Um, but they're performing, aren't they, on the field, on the court as well. And I, I guess with but, Fowler, he's... But more to the point... He, he's like the Anna Kornikova of golf. Oh, you blew away my... my I was going <laughs> to oh, bring sorry, that up. Mate. I was going to surprise <laughs> you about because she's, she's the world record holder in, in, sort of <laughs> in my terms. Of that off-court versus on-court success yeah, meter kind of thing. Dichotomy. Anna Kornikova, <laughs> mate, is worth $50 million. She only ever earned $3.5 million in her tennis career. She did make the semifinals of Wimbledon once, so she, she wasn't rubbish, and she was one of the world's best doubles players. But, uh, yeah, she has – she won she's, – she's worth – what's that? Uh, 17 times what she ever earned playing tennis. That's a pretty good ratio. Now, are you keeping up? Have you heard of NFTs? They are non-fungible tokens. Yes, you heard that correctly. They're the latest craze amongst the blockchain gang, and they've come to sport, in some cases selling for ludicrous amounts of money. Gilly, you're looking at me there quite a blank. You, You have not been keeping up, I take it? 
I've been trying to, and I tried again to understand what blockchain is, and I failed again. Don't worry too much about blockchain. Just worry about NFTs, non-fungible tokens. What a great word, fungible. So digital tokens that can be bought and sold. So you're basically buying effectively the the IP or um, the digital rights of an image, usually. Um, there was a piece of art that sold recently, a digital work of art for how many tens of millions? 69 oh, six, million. 70 yeah, million or something. Yeah. Just crazy money, isn't it? But yeah, apparently people are now buying and selling and trading um, effectively digital pictures or NFTs of their sporting heroes. Steve, you're a tech correspondent. What the heck is this all about? Yeah, so... What's uh, fueling the, this craze? Yeah, non-fungible tokens. The way to think, of it is, think about it is unique things, right? So unique digital things. And the reason why they talk about it in connection to the blockchain is the blockchain keeps um, uh, every sort of uh, action that happens on it as a unique thing. So it's a perfect place to... To, to, to keep these non-fungible tokens. And fungible means, you know, changeable, right? So this is a non-changeable thing. And the way to think about it for sport is in something like a baseball card, right? Where you can have that Mickey Mantle baseball card. And if you've got the very first one that was ever produced, there was only ever one first Mickey Mantle baseball card, and that can be worth millions. What they're doing in digital is they're saying, right, we are going to establish this particular particular digital image and i think you'll find soon simon that i'll turn to video as well and say you can have the first official and america is better at making coverage of sport official (laughs) than anybody you can have the first official digital image of some great moment in sport so you know tom brady throwing for the first touchdown in the most recent super bowl or Derek jeter hitting a walk-off single in his last baseball game and if you've got the official one, the signed off one, and blockchain will prove all of that for you, it it mm. automatically becomes rare. Wow. The other thing I think that makes NFTs um, interesting to sports franchises and really anybody who's trying to sell anything is that because of the way blockchain technology works, it takes out the middleman. You don't need a central bank. You don't need a bank. Oh, yeah. It's a user-maintained system. Mm. So every every transaction on a blockchain is replicated on the PC of every other member of that particular blockchain network. Which so, is a lot, so you can't fra- do anything fraudulent. That's kind can't, of the idea, can't do anything right? fraudulent, and you don't have to pay anybody in the middle. So there's nobody skimming off anything along the way. Mm, mm. Well, there you go. So a fascinating little development in uh, your traditional uh, collector's card, your local footy card uh, market. Uh, now, look, uh, so, so many silly, silly ideas start in a pub. And some of them survived to be uh, to be considered, if not good, then at least worthy ideas in the days that follow. And so it is with the world of competitive vegetable growing, competitive giant vegetable growing, in fact, which supposedly began in a South Wales pub in 1980. And I just want us to read you this quote from one of the stalwarts of this association not quite sport (laughs) this is from the it's not sport but we like it file by the way folks it was just a bit of banter over a pint i can't do the welsh accent so i'm not going to try it was just a bit of a banter over a pint really over who could grow the biggest pumpkin and so they turned this informal challenge among local pub goers into an annual event but both the event and the vegetables quickly outgrew the venue back to the quote by the mid 80s the pumpkins grew so big they couldn't get through the pub door and so the uh, competition expanded uh, beyond the pub and across the country. What a very, very, very 
British thing. It, it, could, only, it could only happen. Uh, it could only happen in, in in Britain. Does anybody actually eat these vegetables? Uh, yeah, apparently they're okay. Yeah. Like, there's a, they have a reputation. <laughs> You're making me silly and expert. I don't like this at all. <laughs> Am I just falling into a trap? Am I falling into a trap here? Apparently, apparently they're actually not too bad. They have a reputation as not being eatable, edible. Um, but if you you know do a big soup or something, or maybe fry them, you know make some pumpkin chips, crisps. It, do, uh, or something. it does bring yeah. back memories of going to the Easter show as a kid, and you know yeah, you'd have cool. the fruit and veg displays, and you're always very small there. You'd look up there and see these veggies, perhaps not as giant as the ones you're describing, Richie. Uh, I, I'm yeah. going to say I was thinking I of the Easter was... show as well. You know, you get. Uh, I, I always got bored going through the the horticultural tent, but as long as we got to the wood chopping, everything was okay. <laughs> Rochi, it seems like it's it's becoming quite a big thing from mm-hmm. from reading the articles. So, pun intended there, Gilly. No, no pun intended. Oh, okay. But yeah. I, I've got a serious question. Right. That's not the purpose of this segment, by the way. Is is WADA going to get involved oh, here? Yes. And if so, will they be testing the vegetables or the competitors or oh, both? Mm. Genetically modified veggies. Well, so I was going to ask whether there be a, there was a steroid problem in this mm. game, and I'm not sure whether it's the 76-year-old growers or the four-and-a-half-ton pumpkins that are the subject. Well, I think this is where they're clever. They're not officially designating themselves as a sport just yet, which for me is a red flag. They're deliberately avoiding indeed, the scrutiny indeed. that WADA would bring. To such a dubious, dubious pursuit. Well, no, I understand there was some controversy. There was some growth hormone found in one of the the pumpkins, but the the uh, athlete, uh, the grower who was accused, said it was planted. Roach, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was also on that hopeless note. Oh, you got more. I was you. fascinated to read that Snoop Dogg, the rapper, has oh, yeah. become a devotee right. as, as well. No. And one of the comp- this is true. One of the competitors mentioned that Snoop Dogg had reached out to him and Snoop Dogg, Snoop Dogg <laughs> confirmed the story and said, you know, yeah, man, I'm uh, into vegetation. But I've watched a few documentaries <laughs> about cigarettes. Snoop Dogg. I, I'm not sure he's using that technology on vegetables. I think it might be something else. Wow. <laughs> but true story. Oh, gosh. Riles, I'm still recovering from your, that uh, attempted joke too. So let's leave the veggies right there and come back with red card, yellow card. Yes, red card, yellow card, where, as I said at the top, we love bringing back into the spotlight the misdemeanours of our friends in the sporting world. Where do we start? Riles, what have you got for us? So I'd like to take you to the Shakespearean world of online poker, where there are literally millions and millions of dollars at stake in these online poker tournaments, and there are new empires being built. And, uh, and there are uh, franchises and they're getting ambassadors who promote them. So champions in the game, they start to promote their different brand of online poker. And a couple of the big ones are GG Poker and Poker Stars. And GG Poker hired a, a previous champion, Dan Bilzerian, who I'm going to nominate for a card in a moment, as okay. their new brand ambassador. Now... Dan's been known to be a little bit on the misogynist side from time to time and proceeded to uh, badmouth a uh, a player by the name of Vanessa Cade who had just lost her sponsorship with GG Poker and, this is the bad bit, signed up with someone else, Poker Stars. He said that no one knew who she was, she wouldn't be missed, she was nothing and then the very next week she beat 70,000 other competitors at Poker Stars to win one and a half million dollars. There you go. Good there stuff. You go. Good on her. Yellow card for Dan Bilzerian. So what's this bloke's name? 
Dan Bilzerian. Okay, fair enough. Bilzerian. Is, po- is poker a sport? Anyway. Yeah, borderline. Yeah, <coughs> close borderline. enough. Uh, any volunteers for next cab? Go on, Jono. Yeah, look, I've got a, uh, I guess, a cross between AFL and golf. I'm going to wow. throw one at you. That's so, an interesting sport right there. It is. So yeah. St Kilda player Max King uh, actually missed an AFL game. Mm. As a result of the concussion rule, but you know what did he get up to? Red card, yellow card. You'd expect him to be mm. up to no good on a Thursday or a Friday night. He was playing golf. Oh, well, that's his. See, you dangerous. Yeah, very dangerous. Don't play golf. And he got hit in the head by a, wow. a stray golf ball, uh, and apparently had to go and get a test. Failed his concussion test, and so he's missing a week. Do you have any? De- I think it was a, his own group. Do you have any details of the incident? Or no, just, I don't. Don't know where he's playing. I mean, I mean, jokes aside, that could kill someone. It really could. Yeah, yeah. So I think he was probably, in some respects, lucky. But um, you know, good to see that he's uh, relaxing by playing the great game of golf in between. So, all oh, right. So, are we giving him a yellow card for playing golf? Is that is that what you're saying? No, just for missing a game, letting his teammates down. <laughs> Don't have time to argue with you too much, Jono. Go on, Gilly. What do you got? Okay, Simon's going to be very upset with me, but I have to go back to the ongoing litigation between <laughs> Rebecca Vardy and <laughs> Colleen Rooney. And unfortunately, unfortunately, all attempts at settlement have failed, and they're now <laughs> arguing about legal costs. So, Simon, you might be able to explain this, but apparently there's some kind of process in litigation where you have to go to the judge and kind of cost demonstrate that your costs, that the costs that you're going to incur in the litigation are going to be reasonable. Uh, it's a little different than that, but yeah, you go on. Jono, you you were right. His red card, yellow card nomination from last show, it, does still, go- on, it yeah. is still going. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, so there is a process involved. It's a little different in the UK than it is in Australia. Okay, there's some there's some process in the UK where you have to demonstrate to the judge that the costs you're going to incur right. are reasonable. And uh, Rebecca Vardy's attorney was trying to do this, mm. uh, and her cost estimate was $1.6 million that's, that's a bargain. in legal costs for a, for a case involving one tweet on Instagram, which Colleen Rooney's counsel described as grotesque. Anyway, it's been deferred until June. Uh, it's not going away, and I can't wait to find out what happens. Who gets the cards? Mm, the lawyers. It's, yeah. No, it's the husbands. It's the husbands, because <laughs> they should really stop this from happening. Just so you know, I, just over the weekend, I bought that tweet as a non-fungible token, and I'm going to be very, very rich. <laughs> <laughs> Good play there, Steve. Good play. Uh, and finally from me, Zoran Mamic, that well-known Croatian football star. He quit as Dynamo Zagreb's coach only days before the league champions recently played a Europa League match against Spurs. The reason? Well, Croatia's Supreme Court confirmed his nearly five-year prison sentence for tax evasion and fraud. It's a pretty good excuse for not turning up to work, really, isn't it? Love mm. this quote. Although I do not feel guilty if the verdict is final, I accept it, very magnanimous, and resign from the position of head coach, dot, dot, dot. So Mamic and his brother, Dravko, who himself was a former Dinamo Zagreb uh, executive director, they were both charged with embezzling the equivalent of $80 million from the sale of players to foreign clubs and for tax evasion of, of about two mil, apparently. So they were both suspected of embezzlement because uh, through fictional deals. One included Luka Modric, uh, who went to Spurs in 08. And indeed, Modric was a key witness during the trial to testifying about his deals with the uh, Mamiches, so who in turn suggested that Modric, Modric sorry, was an accomplice and should also get sent down. So really? Imagine turning up to work and resigning and they're saying, what? it was all going so well, what happened? Oh, Bit yeah, I've got five years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could happen to anyone. So, look, it's a preordained uh, red probably for Zoran there. Uh, could rubber stamp by the uh, Croatian Supreme Court. 
And that brings us to the end of red card, yellow card, and thus to the end of for and against for another another show. It, it leaves us only to say farewell. So thank you, Stephen Riley. Goodbye to you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, everyone. Fairly well, Jono. Till next time. See you, Reggie. And David Gill, good on you, Bear. We'll look forward to hearing from you next show. Thanks, everybody. And it's goodbye from me, Paul Roach. Thank you once again for joining us on For and Against on the Diamond Tina Media Network. Don't forget to find us on Twitter at For and Against underscore on Insta, for dot and dot against. We'll do it all again in a month. Until then, it's bye for now.